The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. The decorating process, and there's usually a news story or two, right, of a family who go above and beyond to transform the landscapes of their homes with exterior illumination and displays of the nativity scene or of Santa or sometimes of both, you know. We hope this season to drive through James uh, Island County Park with our boys to see all the festive displays of lighting. You know, they say there's probably some two million lights or so in that three-mile stretch of road work. No doubt a mass of people work to put together all that we see there and to transform that landscape. You know, the supposed world record of lights on a Christmas tree was completed by two people in Belgium back in 2014 when they put 194,000 lights on a single tree. I don't know about you, but two, three hundred, I'm struggling. Right? I mean, and every year they go away neat, but they are a rat's nest when they come out. Now, the record for the most lights on a single residence is held by the four members of the gay family who live in LaGrangeville, New York. They put some 601,000 lights on their house a few years ago. That must be quite a project that requires an enormous amount of preparation before it can be marveled at and enjoyed. And really all our decorating and transforming of our trees and our homes is the preparation we go through before the arrival of Christmas. You know, Isaiah, in our passage in chapter 40 today, is deeply concerned about preparations. Preparations that are leading up to a great arrival, really the same event that we're commemorating on the 25th of this month. His prophetic message to God's people called for a transformation of the landscape, not with lights and displays, but rather with a great earthward project that he envisioned and imagined. And even the roadways were called to be made better at his time, but not so people could drive by and ooh and ah. Instead, he called for a massive roadwork project to be done so that God can come. That he can arrive and everybody can see him and be able to come to him. And he writes in our passage this morning to give us this simple message that God is coming. God is coming. This is the Advent season that we have now launched into, right, in the month of December. And Advent simply means a beginning And this is the time of year that we focus on the beginning of the incarnation of Jesus Christ when God becomes man, the incarnation of God. And during this season, we are reminded again of the promises that God made to His people regarding the Messiah that He would send, a ruler, a king who would come and who would care for His people. And that's what we're looking at in Isaiah chapter 40 today, where we learn this promise that God is coming. Now, Isaiah was a prophet, and he lived in the 7th century B.C. He is what we would call the prophet par excellence. 
greater than all the prophets. All the prophets wanted to be like Isaiah. Matter of fact, a man like Jonah was very bitter that he was not like Isaiah. Isaiah was the downtown Jerusalem prophet, prophet to the kings, prophet to the important people. And he is quoted in the New Testament more than all the other prophets of the Old Testament combined. And all four of the Gospels use the words of Isaiah, and particularly here, beginning with Isaiah 40, the words to explain not only John the Baptist and who he was, but the very incarnation itself for the arrival of Jesus and even the understanding of him being the Messiah comes from the pages of Isaiah, particularly here, Isaiah 40 this morning. And so in order for us all to more fully understand Jesus' life and message, we by necessity need to comprehend the message of Isaiah. So let me put you in the proper understanding now to hear Isaiah's voice this morning. You're Israelites. You have favored nation status with the creator of the world. God has done great things on your behalf in the past. He brought you out of the land of Egypt. He gave you the land of Israel. He delivered foreigners into your hands. He dwells in Jerusalem, your capital city. And yet now, you and people have slipped into an era of what we call religiosity. Going through the motions, but no transformation of the heart. And you have now failed to follow the teaching and the commands of Yahweh. And because you have taken God and your status for granted, Isaiah's earlier prophetic words have already come true. And in 702 B.C., the great and terrible Assyrian army came down and they crushed the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in 587 B.C., the Babylonians came to Jerusalem and they burned the city where God dwells. And they tore down the walls and they destroyed it completely. They tore down His temple and now they have carried you and your countrymen off into captivity. And for years and decades now, you are being held in a place over 500 miles away from your homeland. And you cling to Isaiah's prophetic message in chapter 40 as your only hope for one day being released from captivity. Let's look at that passage now. Now in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 40, there has been a shift that has taken place, a change in the tone of Isaiah's words up to this point in the book. You see, the first 39 chapters have not been a positive message for the people because they have not been listening to the God. And so now, though this shift has transformed us, this change that's taken place in chapter 40 sets the stage for three voices of proclamation that preach the message that simply God is coming to rescue you. And there is no greater comfort than Him. And that's what the prophet of God, Isaiah, writes. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. The double comfort here, we call it means to show kindness and compassion to. This is the shift here in Isaiah's prophetic word. There is a change of tone in his language that now there's a positive message. They have been browbeaten for 39 chapters to this point, And now 
there's a shift that takes place. God has called for judgment on His people, but now using a language reminiscent of the covenant, God desires to bring relief to His people. And it's twofold here, use of comfort. Comfort is an indicator of God's desire to bring relief to the inward portion of His people. Jerusalem, in verse 2, we see is a metaphor for the faithful people of God. The ones who have really stayed faithful to Him in the midst of their time in this second captivity. And the expression to speak kindly is literally to speak to the heart of people. And the kind of message really that is supposed to leave you a bit clamped, right? Because this is going to grip you. And this is going to be something that holds you and sustain you as God's people in captivity. This message of comfort is one that will connect to the heart of people. You see, the comfort that God is bringing here in Isaiah 40 to His people is not a merited comfort as a result of their suffering. But instead, it is an act of grace on behalf of His people. Isaiah says He ends their warfare. He removes their iniquity, though what is deserved is double for all their sins against the Holy God. That's what verse 2 states. Now, for a people who have been in captivity for years, held in a foreign land, with their land and their homes destroyed back in Israel, and now they live in wait for God to act on their behalf. And the sweetness of Isaiah's words is that one day God will come for us. And so then three voices will bring this message of comfort and draw it out in verses 3 to 5. Now, the first voice in verse 3 is in terms of the preparation for His coming to save them. If there are trees in the way, they must be cleared, as in the wilderness. If there are hills, they need to be leveled. The landscape will be evened out to make a surface that is straight, is plain, is level. The ground itself, it says, will be made passable. We see that the Lord's roadway here is to be straight, it's to be level, it's to be free from obstacle. Then God will arrive without fail. He will travel without any difficulty. And He won't be delayed by any hindrance. Now between where the people are at in Babylon and their homeland was wilderness, desert, and mountains. And if you have ever seen the area in pictures... It would be difficult to make such a journey, especially with men, women, and children of all ages. But Isaiah's message is not that the ground itself should be turned into a roadbed. Rather, it's that a transformation must take place before the Lord will come. God will literally clear the way for His own coming. Nothing will hinder him, not geography, of course, but neither will politics or nations or armies or kingdoms of the earth. He will prepare for his coming so that all will see his glory. And that's what verse 5 describes. When God delivers his people from sin and all its effects, 
all will see it. God's greatness, His majesty, His glory will be made plain for all to see. And God comes because He has declared He would in verse 5. He declared He would in the pages of Isaiah. The text says, The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Not due to any other impetus. It means for us that God is not reactionary. He makes a plan and He carries out that plan. Then a second voice is heard starting in verse 6 through verse 8. Again, the command in the calling out is to listen for there's a message to follow from God. And the message concerns really the temporary nature of humanity in relation to God. People and their ways are like grass and the wildflowers. Mankind is transitory, unreliable, unable to secure what God requires. They cannot deliver themselves. They fail in all their attempts. Their beauty is fleeting, the text says. Now, this language of of the fading grass is used in the Psalms, but it's also used in the New Testament. In James chapter 1, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You see, in contrast to the unreliability of humanity stands the reliability of God and His Word. What is reliable is that which God declares to His people. And in contrast to mankind, God is not going to pass away. The conclusion is that He can be trusted because His Word can be trusted, something the people have known for millennia to this point in time. And so God is going to transform people and change the landscape of humanity. And since all humankind is fleeting and unable to produce what God requires, as a result, He Himself will come. God will come. That's Isaiah's message. And that's the third voice that we hear beginning in verse 9. The voice that must get atop the high mountains so that his message can be heard. The bearer of this message of now, look at this word, good news, is told to get into a position where his message can be proclaimed to all. And Mount Zion, in verse 9, is the symbolic dwelling place of God in the region. And Jerusalem is the city of God. The voice is to clear his throat. He's to lift up his voice so that he can speak loudly and clearly and proclaim the message that God is coming. Now, as in other places in the Old Testament, the good news is the message of divine deliverance. And there are roughly 30 occurrences of this word that Isaiah uses for good news in the Old Testament, and they all communicate some form of divine deliverance. And the roots of understanding the New Testament's use of gospel, which means good news, lies in Isaiah's use of gospel here in chapter 40, and again in 52, and then in 60, and in 61. 
and, and this is a bonus item, and there isn't time to develop much in this message, and it won't be on the test, so that's the good news. But all the gospel writers, they all assume you already understand that Jesus did not invent the gospel, but that Isaiah and the Old Testament writers previously developed what the gospel was. Jesus just embodied the gospel. I mean, Mark writes in the first verse of chapter 1, and he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. And then he quotes from chapter 40 of Isaiah. You will never grasp what Mark is talking about until you know what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 40, because Mark assumes you already know it. Jesus didn't invent the gospel. Mark's been, uh, Isaiah had been proclaiming the gospel already for hundreds of years, and his message is hanging there that the message of the gospel is the message of divine deliverance. By default, he has to come and save. By default, he has to deliver his people. They're in captivity. There ain't no rescue in yourself. I'm from Chicago area. We can say that there. Again, that was the bonus stuff, so we don't we have to take notes on that. The message of divine presence, though, is deliverance. His presence is his own deliverance. I mean, what are the gifts that God brings? He brings himself. What more can he give? The greatest gift God can give is himself, his presence, that we would dwell in it. For if God is with us, the scriptures say, who then can oppose us? Isaiah's message is that God, the great and almighty one, is coming to visit creation in a new and different way. An unimaginable way. The bearer of good news here is announcing the arrival of God himself. Like many years ago, when people arrive at a grand function at a mansion or a castle, even in those days in the kingdom, as they would be let in, the person at the door would call out their name. That's the imagery that's depicted here. So that everyone there is made aware of their presence. Verse 10 says, the Lord God will come with might. You can't get much more formal in the scriptures than the powerful combination of Yahweh Adonai, sometimes called Jehovah Adonai. Isaiah is communicating a serious message concerning the coming of God, and this is full name time. Like when your mother uses your full name. I'm 49 years old, there's still moments. Normally I'm just Daniel, but then in certain moments, Daniel, Tim! Yes, Mother? Then we know it's serious, right? Here is one of those times Isaiah is communicating the serious nature of the coming of God to the people of God. God comes as the divine ruler, and the text describes his arm, his ruling arm, that's, that's his might. But also it says he brings a reward for his people. Really, it's a people who deserve punishment, but he's bringing a reward for him. Normally, it's wages which you earn, but when this language is used in relationship to God and his people, it's a gift. 
Isaiah is describing. And instead of judgment for his people, which is really what they deserve, instead, Jehovah Adonai, the mighty one, comes as the tender shepherd to care for his flock. It's a mission of grace, the coming of God. You know, sheep are the most referenced animal in the Bible. They're prone to wander when they're not fenced in. Thus, the shepherd must meet the every need of the sheep. And the shepherd in the Bible is, of course, the model of compassion. So here we learn that God's recompense, which is his reward, his gift to his people, is his presence with his people and his tender care over them, as seen here in the shepherd's activities of the gathering and the carrying and the leading, as verse 11 describes. The great and powerful arm of the Lord, which in the scriptures is able to crush nations and destroy entire people groups, becomes in Isaiah 40 the gentle arm of the shepherd. And the gathering is God's calling of his people. And the carrying is God's sustaining and protecting hand upon us. And the leading is God's nurturing of his people in causing them to grow in the ways of righteousness. So find comfort this morning in the message simply that God is coming, coming to earth. So Isaiah 40, as we're talking about it, is a prophetic text And it speaks to the people in Isaiah's day, for they long to be released from captivity and return to their homeland. And sure enough, in the early 500s B.C., there was what we call a partial fulfillment that came true. In this language and terms we use called progressive fulfillment of the Old Testament. So this partial fulfillment came true as the Israelites, under the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, were in fact returned to the land. And there they rebuilt, right, the temple and the walls, as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah recount for us. But yet now, the fullest understanding of Isaiah's message was of a different kind than that partial fulfillment. And the greatest fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40 would be found in a different time and in a different way that was unimaginable and incomprehensible at the time. Because surely no one could be in the presence of God, right? Didn't they tie a rope to the priest when he went in there once a year? Because no one could barge in. If something happened to him, you had to drag his body out of there if he made a mistake. You couldn't imagine being in God's presence. But now there's a new fulfillment that comes about where God was going to come to the earth and He was going to release His people from the power of sin in their life and the power of sin over their life because God's coming and deliverance of His people was not going to be simply physical, but it was going to be spiritual. It was going to break down those walls and those barriers of religiosity, right? And this is why Jesus never get along with any of the religious folk of the day, did he? Because they had externalized the worship of God. And Jesus was talking about something else, an internal. Power so great, since power is, that it holds all humanity 
from birth in its grips. And that's the coming that we as the people of God even now anticipate this morning as we are remembering Jesus Christ coming to earth, God as man. The coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophetic words of Isaiah. Jesus is God's promised, sent, divine deliverer. Jesus has come to earth. He has brought his reward, his recompense, just as Isaiah stated 700 years before. The message that Jesus is the one whose way was prepared for is found then clearly in the pages of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, as they all quote from Isaiah. The Gospels all see and declare that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's message of hope, the message of a coming future gospel, divine deliverance on the people's behalf, when God would come and deliver his people in a way he never had before. Well, the good news is that God has come. Jesus brings to us the greatest release from imprisonment that can be known. The release from the imprisonment to sin and sin's power. And everybody wants and needs to be freed from the bondage that they have towards sin. And only Jesus, God in the flesh, can free them. All humanity desires to be released from their imprisonment in their lives. We all reside in total bondage to sin. We all are enslaved to something, aren't we? Everyone lives for something in this life, some bottom line that we have, something that is the most important thing to us, something that we believe we cannot live without. And often it is our negative, intense, uncontrolled emotions that betray us. They reveal that while we say we believe in the coming of God to earth in Christ to save us, our uncontrolled fear or anger or resentment or rage or jealousy reveal that really you live for something else. Something is more important. Something's more important than God sending his son, spoken of in the words of Isaiah. We so often claim to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but functionally, we live with something else at the center of our lives. What is that thing for you this morning? You know, so often this time of year we're trying to live to have the perfect Christmas. The right tree, the right decorations, the right gifts, the right family moments, the right pictures. Trying to make children or other loved ones as happy as they can be. Worried that if they don't get the right things or their holiday memories might not be okay. Worried that they might not love you the way you need them to love you. It is so easy to end up as a people who are in bondage to Christmas. Can there be more irony than that? Advent is a season of celebration that God has sent to earth to rescue us and save his people from their bondage to sin. And the celebration of this wonderful event can place you in bondage. Isaiah is telling us of a coming deliverance that came for us 2,000 years ago. And during this season, we celebrate his coming because we know what Jesus has done for us. 
That He frees us from sin's power over us. And through His life's work, He bestows upon us forgiveness through God the Father. Forgiveness for all the times that we've chosen to make something other than God the most important thing in our lives. Even forgiveness for making Christmas into a time of something other than anticipating and celebrating the coming of God to earth. We need more anticipation of the gospel and less anticipation of whether Christmas will work out and everyone will be happy. We need more anticipation of the gospel and less interest in what we are getting out of this season. We need more anticipation of the gospel and maybe less petty arguments about who brings the salad or the cookies. God delivers us from all this. He frees us from this in Christ. The message that God has come is the message of comfort that Christ is our nurturing, caring, loving shepherd who visits us. Believe in that gospel message this morning. The message that God has come and we are the recipients of all that he has done for us in Christ Jesus. So anticipate that. As you move through Advent, anticipate the gospel and its power's work in your life. For only in it will you receive the greatest gift. Only in it will you be forgiven and freed. And only in it will you become the sheep belonging to Christ, the great shepherd. Take comfort. God is coming. Let's pray. Almighty God. How good it is to be your people, to be the church this morning, to stand in your presence, to experience the greatness of the glory of your plan, which culminates in the coming of your Son to earth. God is coming, and he has come in Christ Jesus. We're so grateful for this opportunity continue to restore and renew us with the hope of the gospel and all its transforming power in our lives. These things we ask in your most holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen.